Well, good morning, everyone. You are the company of the committed. You are the ones that are willing to embrace all forms of weather in order to worship God and uh, to sit under the teaching of God's word, and we are delighted you are here. I also want to say a special welcome to any of you that might be visiting with us uh, today at Wheaton Bible Church. I'm, my name is Rob Boo. I'm the senior pastor here, and I will be down right over here after this service, and I would love to meet any of you, especially those of you that might be visiting with us uh, this morning. We are in a series entitled Explore God. We're joining 900 other churches around Chicago where we're looking at common questions people have about Christian, uh, Christianity. And today the question is, is the Bible reliable? It was a question raised in the video we just saw. It's a big topic. It's an important topic. It's, as the woman said, it's a, a controversial topic because increasingly in modern America, our answer to that question is no, of course not. There's no way the Bible could be reliable. As a matter of fact, if you think about the educational landscape here in the United States, there is not a single elite university. I'm not aware of a single public university in the entire United States that would affirm the authority and the reliability of the Bible. If they were going to affirm anything in this area, it would be just the opposite, that the Bible is full of inaccuracies, that the Bible is unreliable. And what I want you to understand is here in the United States, over the last 400 years, we have gone through a cultural migration. We began this country with a dominant belief in God. Later that morphed, it became diluted, and we were characterized by a dominant belief in country. And today, we have a dominant belief in self. So New York Times columnist David Brooks, not a believer, not a Christian, at least yet, has described the North American culture, uh, the United States culture, as the culture of the big me, where everything is about me, myself, and I, the big me. So this is significant because where years passed, we would uh, doubt the human heart. We would doubt our hearts. Today, we now doubt authority in all its forms, especially the authority of the Bible. After all, we argue the Bible is historically unreliable, it's culturally repressive, and it's personally restrictive. Now, I get this because I used to believe exactly that. Wanted nothing to do with the Bible. It completely ignored the Bible. But then one night I had an experience. I was 19 years old. I got arrested. I got thrown in jail because I was trying to drink and drive at the same time. And the police said, that's a no. So that evening while I was in jail, 
And then in the weeks and the months after that, I began to realize that I was in the process of becoming just like my alcoholic father. And I was in school, college at the time, and God in his providence brought a couple guys into my life on the heels of that that challenged me about the claims of Jesus Christ. And I decided to embark on a search. And this is exactly what I questioned. Is the Bible reliable or not? I spent months and months wrestling, reading, uh, talking to people. Is Jesus reliable or not? And along the way, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes. I experienced an extreme makeover. And God saved me. And so today, decades later, I want to share with you, offer you three reasons why year after year, decade after decade, I continue to believe the Bible is true. And to do that, I want to look at two passages in the Gospel of Luke this morning. I want to look at the first chapter and then the last chapter. So would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1 and would you stand with me as I read from God's word? Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things, now these would be the things about Jesus, that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were, and this is important, eyewitnesses, and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully invested everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, we don't know who Theophilus was, but because he's described as most excellent, Certainly he was a man of status and wealth. Now let's go to the end of the Luke, Luke chapter 24. And I'm going to pick up this final story beginning in verse 13, but I want, I want you to know is this story describes events in the afternoon of that first Easter. Christ has risen from the dead in the morning and now Luke is picking up a story of what takes place in the afternoon. And Jesus suddenly appears to two men who were followers of Christ, but highly skeptical of everything that has just happened. So we read in Luke 24 and verse 13, Now the same day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up, walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. In other words, they stopped. Faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, Ask him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, 
He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. Now this is when it gets interesting. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. That would be the Old Testament concerning himself. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 31. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him, that is Jesus, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You may be seated. And you're all thinking, thinking thank you, that was a long time to stand. We've got a couple of marvelous passages here, and I want to begin this morning with Luke chapter 1. And I, uh, full disclosure, I've been really, really helped by my favorite author, Pastor Tim Keller, and I highly recommend his book, Reason for God. His book and some sermons have really informed my thinking today, and I'm borrowing liberally from uh, Tim Keller, as well as a couple others that I won't take the uh, time to mention. So when we come to Luke chapter 1, there's a couple things I want you to know. First of all, Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, was a medical doctor. So he was given to detail, he was given to precision, if you will. He wasn't one of the 12, he was the second generation after the disciples. And historians tell us the Gospel of Luke was written within 30 years of the death of Jesus Christ. So that's why in chapter 1 and verse 2, Luke tells us he was able to talk to eyewitnesses. He went to them and, and questioned them and wrote down things they had to say, as well as talking to the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples in verse 2 are described as the servants of the word. So Luke is interviewing, he, he's reporting, he's uh, writing down these marvelous historical uh, events, all from eyewitnesses. Now Luke could not say what he's about to say about the life and ministry, miracles of Jesus in a public document if it wasn't true. Why? Because many of the eyewitnesses were still alive. And all they had to do was refute what Luke was writing in this public document, the, this gospel, and Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. The New Testament was written too early, too quickly after the events it's describing for it to be legend. 
people were still alive. They could debunk it. Well, let me go on. Because the first thing I want to develop here is the first reason <clears throat> I believe uh, the Bible is true is because it's historically reliable. And one of the reasons for that is the early date uh, of the Bible. But there's a second reason, not just the early date, but also the Bible's brutal honesty. I so appreciate how honest the Bible is. So if you go to chapter 24 and verse 25, uh, we see Jesus rebuking these two men. Men that again were followers of Christ, trying to figure out who Jesus was. And he calls them fools. And slow to believe in verse 25 of chapter 24. And we see this over and over in how the Gospels portray the 12 disciples. They were men that were repeatedly confused. They didn't know their own mind. Uh, they were floating in a breeze, not sure who Jesus was, full of doubt. Actually, James and John, two of the 12, try to manipulate Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus. And on and on throughout the Gospels. Now, if you and I were trying to launch a cult or trying to ignite a religious movement, we wouldn't begin by telling everybody in the Gospels what bumbling fools they were. But the Bible is honest. I mean, think about it today. If a company is going to go public and offer stock, uh, for us to buy, they're not going to say in the prospectus, hey, we want you to buy a bunch of our stock, but by the way, our management, the management is a bunch of idiots. But that's exactly what we have in the Gospels. So not only uh, was the Bible written too uh, quickly, too early, it's also uh, too honest. To be a legend. Then, third, we have too many details, too many historical details, little details, insignificant details. So in chapter 24, and let me just run through a list here in chapter uh, 24, we're told the specific name of the village, Emmaus, that these two men are walking to. Uh, uh, a real village in history. And we're told, in addition, that the walk was seven miles. We're given the name of one of the two, Cleopas. Uh, in verse 29, we're told it was getting dark. In verse 30, that they ate a meal. Uh, then in the next couple of verses, that Jesus suddenly uh, dis disappeared. We have all this detail. We see this kind of detail throughout the Gospels. For example, in the Gospel of John. We are told that Peter was fishing in the Sea of Galilee, 100 yards from shore. Jesus shows up, and between Jesus, mostly Jesus and Peter, Peter catches 153 fish. Now, it didn't get rounded down to 150, or rounded up to 160 or 155. The Gospel of John says 153 fish. 
Now what's so interesting is that these details that we see over and over in the Gospels are irrelevant to the plot. Now today, this is a little hard for us to understand the significance because in modern fiction, I mean fiction of the last hundreds, a uh, couple hundred years, as well as historical fiction, fiction and historical fiction is full of histor uh, details, historical details, real places, real cities, uh, you know, often real murders, uh, things like that. But that wasn't the case with fiction in the ancient world. It was full of fantastic legends, gods and goddesses, and historical detail was a minimum, if not non-existent. So what the gospel writers are doing, I want you to understand, is completely and totally countercultural. And the only explanation for all the repeated historical detail in the Gospels is that it had been retained in the memory of the eyewitnesses. So why is the New Testament historically reliable? Because of its early date, because of its brutal honesty, because of its attention to detail, and fourth, by the fact that it's been confirmed repeatedly by archaeology. A couple of times I have stood in Jerusalem by an ancient pool called the Pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 5, John mentions the Pool of Bethesda and tells us there Jesus healed a lame man. But he goes on and he gives us more detail and he tells us that pool was surrounded by five colonnades, uh, columns that were covered. Now, for years, I mean for decade after decade, uh, people would point to that episode in John chapter 5 and say, you know, this is why the Bible can't be reliable. Because archaeologists have uncovered a whole lot of stuff in Jerusalem, but they've never discovered this pool. Therefore, this is historical inaccuracy. John was wrong. The Bible's unreliable. But years go by, archaeologists continue to deep, dig deeper and deeper, and what do they do? They discover not only the pool, but the colonnades, all five of them. There has never been an archaeological discovery, and I've been to many archaeological digs or tells in Israel that has negated or contradicted anything the Bible teaches. Not one, not a single archaeological discovery has disputed anything. Uh, 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 the, the Bible teaches. Now, what's my point? My point in beginning by talking about the historical reliability of the Bible is this. We don't suspend reason to believe the Bible. We believe the Bible because it's historically reasonable. I would give my life for the Bible, because I would give my life for truth, and the Bible is truth. When the Bible speaks, God speaks, and history dramatically verifies that. Now let me go on. 
Not only do I believe the Bible is historically reliable, the second reason I believe the Bible is true is because it's culturally beneficial, culturally life-giving. I would say culturally exceptional. A sociologist, not a historian, but a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark once wrote a book entitled The Rise of Christianity. And in the book, he wrestles with the question, why did Christianity move from this small group of people in nowhere, Palestine or Israel, to become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire over a couple centuries? How in the world could that have happened? And in the book, Stark says there's two things of what Christians believed, the content of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how Christians lived. Christians in the Roman Empire were committed to equal rights, committed to the dignity of all people, especially the poor and the marginalized. So when the plagues hit and the Roman elites would flee Rome, Christians in the 60s and 70s when the first plague hit, later the second plague in, in the second uh, century, Christians stayed and took care of the sick, often at the cost of their life. Christians were the ones that built the early orphanages, the first hospitals. Christianity was life-giving in the brutal Roman Empire. And we've seen this over and over again throughout history. I mean, what made Europe great? What has made the United States great? But it's early foundations built on the Bible. But it's not just countries. It's tribal groups all around the world. Years ago, I was in the Amazon jungle. And I was with a tribal group that had been former headhunters and, and murderers. Uh, killing people with spears. And, and I was with some, what had become some famous tribes people. Because this was a tribe that had murdered Jim Elliot and Nate Saint. And I was with two older people that were part of that killing. The husband had thrown spears that murdered these missionaries. And uh, these two people had come to Christ. Uh, Dayuma was the, the wife. I forget the husband's name. And she had a smile. They both had smiles as wide as their faces. They were short, but their smiles were really wide. <laughs> because Christianity had come into their village. And they had come to Christ. And they were no longer murderers. And now instead of killing rival tribal groups. They were giving themselves to see them come to Christ. The Bible is life-giving. It's culturally exceptional. But today people say, no way. The Bible is culturally repressive. Look at this area, look at this area. And now let me spend some time with this and ask the question, why do people today say this? And I want to suggest among many reasons, there's two that we need to understand. First of all, we simply don't understand the Bible very well. We think we know what it's saying, but we really don't know what it's saying. So in Luke chapter 24, did these two men know what the Old Testament is really saying? No. 
They had completely missed what the Old Testament had to say about Jesus. So Jesus went back and traced his identity throughout the Old Testament. They had no idea that Jesus, the Messiah, had to die for sins so that we might find forgiveness and purpose and hope the moment we believe in Jesus. Those two guys, like all the first century Jews, had no categories for a Messiah that would come and would not conquer Rome, but instead would be crucified. The Bible wasn't saying what they thought it was saying, and they missed it. They didn't understand it. So let's take slavery. I can't believe what the Bible says because even the Apostle Paul condones slavery. So, for example, in Colossians chapter 2, uh, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly master. See there, the Bible condones slavery. And what we don't understand is there is an enormous difference between what we call old world slavery and new world slavery. Old world slavery, the slavery of the first century Roman Empire, was not race-based. It was a form of employment. It's estimated that 85% of all the citizens in Rome were slaves. Uh, Slaves had good jobs. They were paid good wages. They had all sorts of a variety of important positions throughout the empire, short of being among the elite. And slavery in first century Rome was actually temporary. Most people bought their way out of their slavery by the time they were in their 30s. That's old world slavery. New world slavery, as we've experienced over the last couple of centuries here in the United States, was race-based. It was brutal. It was oppressive. It denied the dignity of minorities. And it was permanent. So when Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in Colossians, he is not talking about new world slavery. He's talking about old world slavery. And and Paul is saying, work hard, be good employees. Paul is not saying it's good to own other people. Or to brutalize them. He is not even saying old world, he's not even defending old world slavery. He's just saying when you work, work with all your heart, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Now, uh, there's a second reason um, people believe the Bible is culturally repressive. And that is, uh, and and this is a reality for all of us, all of us have cultural blinders. So, for example, in modern Western America today, with our emphasis on individualism and autonomy and uh, the big me, we reject increasingly what the Bible says about traditional marriage, sex, and homosexuality. You got to be kidding me. I, there's no way I'm going to believe the Bible because it teaches, you know, it, it, it speaks to these areas and it's, man, it's repressive. 
But yet today in our culture, we really like what the Bible has to say about compassion, turning the other cheek, and forgiveness. But if you lived in the Middle East today, you would approve of what the Bible says about traditional marriage, sex, and homosexuality. But you would completely and totally disapprove of what the Bible says about forgiveness. Why? What's the difference? Because in the Middle East today, it's, it's an honor and shame culture. So if someone shames you or your family or a member of your family, and especially publicly, you're never, you're never going to forgive them. But the Bible teaches both morals and forgiveness. I mean, after all, if God exists, doesn't it make sense that he might have some values that are different than any single culture? That he might have some values that are different than yours, that are different than mine, that are different than each and every culture? You know, just because we don't like what Jesus has to say about sex in the United States today doesn't mean Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead. When it comes to culture, society, situations, the Bible is life-giving. Uh, a month ago, our credit, number, our credit card number was stolen. How many of you have experienced this? Man. And, and it happened like four years ago. And you know what a pain it is to get all that... Uh, a, a change, and, and by the way, I, I want you to stop stealing my credit card number. <laughs> so, is that wrong? I mean, if God doesn't exist, and we have no um, biblical template for morality, how can we possibly ultimately say stealing is wrong? Yet in our guts, we all know it's wrong. I mean, what's our guide? Uh, what's our, 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 our standard? How can we uh, possibly say that? How can we say uh, uh, sleeping with your boyfriend is wrong or, or, or living together or uh, child abuse or sex trafficking and, 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 and on? I mean, what is your guide? Without a Bible that transcends culture, we are doomed to our own particular cultural moment. Just as these two men in Luke 24 were doomed to their hopelessness because of their Jewish beliefs. Third, I believe the Bible is true because it's personally transforming life-changing. The Bible completely and totally changed my life. I mentioned that. Now let me be direct with you for just a moment here and bear with me. Your biggest problem in life is you. It's not your health, <coughs> your husband, your spouse, your jo job, or the absence of one. It's you and specifically your heart. Your sinful, fallen heart. Look how Jesus vividly and bluntly puts this in Mark chapter 7. 
Jesus is speaking, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, I love you guys, but I want to tell you what Jesus is saying is the human heart has an enormous capacity for evil. Your heart. And now let me illustrate this in Luke chapter 24. So let's go to Luke chapter 24 and look at verse 25. (coughs) Jesus said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. (coughs) Slow to believe is literally slow in heart. In the Bible, the heart is the center of personality. And like all of us, these men's hearts, these two men's hearts, were shaped by their culture. I mean, Jesus is right there. They're looking at Jesus. But their eyes were closed. And prior to that, they were skeptical. They were unbelieving. Jesus says they were foolish, just like I was. Just like we all are when it comes to Jesus. Yet by the time we get to verse 32, look at verse 32, there has been a dramatic change in their hearts. And they talk to each other about how their hearts were burning within them when Jesus opened the scripture to them. And burning in the Greek means an uncontrollable, overwhelming desire for someone or something. Now, I don't believe this was the first time they experienced a burning in their heart for someone or something. But this time it was different because instead of having a burning desire for some aspect of creation, they had a burning desire for the creator. They had a burning desire for Jesus. They had a burning desire to experience Jesus, the wonder, the sweetness, the majesty of God who became a man. And who bore the judgment of God on the cross to cover the guilt of their shame in order to rescue them. Now how did they get to this burning desire? Because I long for this burning desire for Jesus for you. I long for it for me. I pray about it all the time. And the answer is found in verse 27. Verse 27 is the key. And we read, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You know, what is the key? It's seeing Jesus in the entire Bible, here specifically the Old Testament. Unless you believe, verse 27, that the Bible is not a long list of instructions, that the Bible is not about you, but the Bible, everything in the Bible is about Jesus. And there's one story, one hero, one dying, bleeding Savior who God sent to deliver us from our sins 
unless you believe that, that everything in the Bible points to Jesus, that Jesus is the center of the Bible, not you, not a, not a particular character in the Bible, then you will be crushed by the morality of the Bible or either you will be convinced the Bible is irrelevant because of its age and you miss, like the two missed, Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. The Bible isn't about you, it's about Jesus. Moses, or let me say it this way, Jesus is the true Moses who leads his people out of their captivity to sin. Jesus is the true Joshua, who leads his people into God's promised rest. Jesus is the true David, who takes on the giant of sin. While we, like the cowering, fearful Israeli soldiers, are lost in our hopelessness and unbelief. But Jesus didn't kill, Jesus was killed to gain the victory. Jesus is the true Passover lamb, the true tabernacle, the true temple. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And when you see Jesus not instruction as a point of the Bible, and his death for you was foretold throughout the Old Testament in order to give you life. What does that do? That produces a burning desire in your heart for Jesus. And your experience will be the verse 32 experience. And so let me say this as I wind this up. I believe, based on this passage, that one of the ways you can tell whether or not you're a believer in Christ is whether you have a burning desire for Jesus. Now, there's going to be an ebb and a flow, but over time, you have this constant burning desire for Jesus. Do you? And it's the Bible that's the on-ramp. Just this week, I received a note from a woman I haven't seen in 40 or 45 years. Right after I came to Christ, I was in college, and I I went to summer school, and summer school was in Austria. And even though I hardly knew anything, I decided to start a Bible study at, at, at this school where a bunch of us from the United States were. And it was a problem because I didn't know the difference between Genesis and Revelation. But Judy, who wrote me this note, came, and during the course of the Bible study, Judy came to Jesus Christ. And 40 years later, she's writing me a thank you note saying that for 40 years she has had a burning desire for Jesus because of what she has learned about him in the Bible. The Bible changes lives. A couple of years ago, I was with a, a group of people, some of you from Wheaton Bible Church, and we were just about a mile or two from the Gaza Strip in Israel as we were working our way through Israel. And we were with that evening Jewish Holocaust survivors. Now can you think, and there's other people, but if you think of one group that has experienced more torture, more pain, and that are living today than the Holocaust survivors, they're going to be up there in terms of their pain. And so my buddy Tom Doyle, the missionary who took us on this Israel trip and Taken, has taken us in our church a couple of times, and I'm going to do another one in 2020, by the way. Uh, 
just sent an email out this week. Some of you got it saying 60 of those Holocaust survivors have now come to Jesus. Jewish Holocaust survivors. The Bible changes lives. Recently, one of my, uh, in the last couple of days, one of our younger staff emailed me and said, hey, Rabbi, I just want you to know, I, I've taken a group of guys through reading the Bible, and we just finished reading the Bible in 180 days, and we all did it personally, and we came together, and each of the guys in the group were amazed how that reading changed their views of everything, uh, from how they view suffering to leadership in the marketplace to, to leadership in business. The Bible is the life-changing word of God. It has changed my life. It will change your life. The older I get and the deeper I go and the meditation and the memory and the, and the love of Scripture, two things are happening. I'm becoming increasingly aware of my own arrogance, my own self-centeredness, the sinfulness of my Mark 7 heart. We all have Mark 7 hearts. And yet the beauty and the wonder of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, all that Jesus has done for me. And you know what that does? It produces in me a greater and greater burning desire for Jesus. Do you have that burning desire? So as I conclude, just a couple of things. If you've never done so, grab your Bible and start reading it for 20 minutes a day every day. Or if you're not, get into a group. Or if you're in a group, make sure that, that your discussion is around the Bible and you're open and honest in your questions and you're digging and digging because it's a Bible that changes our lives. And finally, if you've never done so, I want to invite you right now, if God the Spirit is speaking to you, to come to Jesus who loves you so much he died for you. Would you pray with me? So if God is speaking to you and you've never done so, I want to invite you to receive Jesus in the quietness of this moment. Maybe you've never talked to Jesus, but talk to him now. And under your breath, just say something like this. Jesus, thank you for loving me so much you died for me. Thank you that you died that I might find forgiveness and eternal life. And right now, this cold, snowy February in 2019, I trust you. And I thank you that you, by your spirit, will come and change me from the inside out. And for the rest of you that have trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you, I want to pray, God, that my brothers and sisters in Christ here will cling to Jesus and you will produce in all of us this burning desire because we see Jesus in the word. Amen. In attached to your worship folder is a connect card. It looks like this. If God has been speaking to you and, and you have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, a faith commitment, I'd encourage you to fill out uh, one of these top boxes 
and then you can drop this card in the offering plate as it is about to be passed. And if you are visiting with us today, I want you to know that this worship service is our gift to you. And we are just thrilled that you are here. And this offering is a family practice, and we give of our resources to further the global, local cause of Christ. And we thank you for your time with us today. Let's receive our offering now.